The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by Opportunity International. Opportunity International is a global nonprofit working to end extreme poverty by empowering people with an opportunity. They provide small loans and training, and they so individuals can grow their businesses, send their kids to school, and work their way out of poverty once and for all. So go to opportunity.org to create an opportunity for someone to change their life forever. And with that, I like to always, we always like to give shout outs on the Measure Success podcast. And this is to actually Scott Gilmore and Paul Friedenmaker from Opportunity International. They were kind enough. This is one of our four charitable organizations that 40 Strategy gives out to on a consistent basis. We give the first 10% of our net revenues to charity. And, and so Scott and Paul were, were critical to help getting our guest, Randy Kurtz, to be able to talk to that. So thank you so much, Scott and Paul, for making this happen. And with that, now we're going to talk about our guest, Randy Kurtz. Randy oversees opportunities, finance, accounting, and investment, human resources, IT, and legal departments, and joined Opportunity in International in November 2018. His focus is to strengthen efficiencies and effectiveness and to drive the outcomes of further Opportunity's mission to end extreme poverty. Before joining Opportunity, Kurt spent 27 years in invest. Sorry, Kurt spent 27 years in investment banking with Goldman Sachs, Solomon Brothers, Citigroup, and Credit Suisse. Randy led also 47 completed M&A transactions in North America, Europe, Asia, and South America, ranging in up to $10 billion in size. He's also an audit committee financial expert, according to SEC NYSE rules. Most, uh, more recently, Kurtz made a personal decision to trade his Wall Street career for a commitment to helping those in need and giving back. First, Randy served as CEO of the, the Cristo Ray Network, supporting underserved urban youth, which now has 35 high schools nationally. Then he was also deputy director and CFO of the Illinois Criminal Justice Authority. While authority, Kurtz created the Pathway to Enterprise for Returning Citizens, or PERC, a program providing ex-offenders with startup capital and entrepreneurship training. Randy earned an MBA in finance from the University of Chicago. Randy, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you, Carl. Happy to be here with you. So first, I always like to have all of our guests, and especially since you're, quote unquote, the sponsor of the show and uh, this particular show and the partnering that we've done to help raise more awareness to Opportunity International. Can you please give the audience more of an understanding of what Opportunity International is? Yeah, uh, sure. So for 50 years, Opportunity International has helped families, entrepreneurs, and business people break the cycle of poverty increase their earning capacity, support themselves, and educate their children. Last year, we reached 2.8 million children with higher quality education, and we served 
clients. That's what we call the people we're helping low-income families, smallholder farmers around the world in 30 countries. So we're, we're an NGO, you know, that's a term for an agency that's doing usually international work, you know, fighting to end poverty. And it's, it's good work and it's been going on for a long time. So give some examples of, of how this happens at the ground. One of the things that really interested me when, when I got involved and I heard speaking Opportunity International, it was at a, a women's conference up at Microsoft and I was there, Sherry Burke had, was presenting and speaking. And I just happened to be at, in the audience when I heard this, I was like, wow, this is a really special organization. These, these microloans part, how does that actually functionally work? Like how does, an indiv- you know, how does somebody from halfway around the world get money and, and then how do they actually deploy that at a detailed level so they can help break that in that poverty? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Thank you. It, it's our <clears throat> it's our business model that I'm going to explain. And starting with the source of funds, we raise money from individuals, from corporate and foundation institutions, and from the U.S. government. We get support both from the State Department and the Department of Agriculture. And the funds that we take in primarily fund two programs: our Ag Finance Program and our edu finance or education finance program. On the ag side, what we're doing is we are working both with small banks and other lending institutions in Africa to help them understand the agriculture market, how to work with smallholder farmers and small agribusinesses. And then simultaneously, we have about 600 farmer support agents across Africa who are working with the smallholder farmers. So we're working with the small and medium-sized banks that lend to these small farmers, and we're working with the farmers themselves to help improve uh, crop yields, improve pricing and distribution of their products, all with a goal towards having more capital released is our term that we measure success by, into that smallholder farmer sector. On the education side, it's really the same model because we have our technical assistance people working with now 80 financial institutions across Africa, India, and Latin America, where we are educating them about the education market in affordable non-state schools. So these are small private schools, often run by an entrepreneurial couple or an individual, very small schools serving, you know, a couple hundred children in a low-income, often rural area. Those schools, if they can get a $10,000 loan, could add another room, could add running water, could add a second bathroom. So boys and girls have different bathrooms. These are the kind of very you know, ground level kind of loans that are happening to the schools. So we're working with the, with the banks to educate them how to make those loans and how to protect their capital in the education sector. And then we have an edu quality operation that's working with thousands of schools who are borrowers from these partner banks to help them improve learning outcomes and be successful. So in both cases, we're working with small banks in the education sector and the ag sector, and then in turn with the farmers and the schools that are the recipients of the loans. 
So it's not a, a few other nonprofits or NGOs that have very basic, simple kind of one sentence models. Ours is not that. You got to stay with me for a couple of minutes to get it, but we're really making an impact and, and working, helping millions of children go to school and helping hundreds of thousands of farmers get support for their work. So that's powerful. And, and what I, one of the things I really appreciate what it appears like what's happening is this really, this isn't just giving money. This is this, if you may, using the analogy is teaching them how to fish, right? It's, it's creating sustainable efforts that they on their own will be able to provide for themselves in the future and ideally then be able to contribute back to their communities. Right, right. It's, it's not just, although we measure our number one metric is capital released agriculture with small farmers into education for these small, low-income oriented schools, we're working with the farmers, training and developing their practice as well as working with the schools so it's capital plus training equals better outcomes yeah yeah no i i love that part around it it's it's how many times do we see a, a lot of money get into a certain situations right and and you hear a backup right of truck supplies a first aid that's going nowhere or it gets um, depleted or can't even get in there because of safety conditions that take place. And that doesn't solve anything right at the end of the day when that gets to it, but where you're doing, it's interesting. You talk about the education for the bankers themselves. Does this then, does this give them the confidence to give other loans that they perhaps wouldn't have done without your assistance? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, so the way, the way it works both on the ag side and the education side is our, our marketing people in Africa or in Latin America, will you know, go around in a, in a community or an area meeting with these small banks and microfinance institutions and say, are you interested in education? You know, what's your practice? Are you loaning a lot of money into education? And for the ones that know all about it, we just go to the next one. But there are many of these small banks that would like to support education or agriculture. They know how important it is but their record is that they've lost money lending to those kinds of institutions. So their, their credit people and their business people are like, mm, that's risky. And so we come along and say, we know how to do this. We've got lots of experience in the field. We know what this looks like. We know how to avoid some of the pitfalls. And that's really appealing. And so they sign on with us. We call them financial service partners. And as I said, we have 80 of these in education. Right now we have nine on the ag side and we're growing that ag business substantially. So it's gonna ramp up quite a bit, but we're working with a lot of small banks and institutions that wanna do this work, but they need our help. Yeah, well, I think that's, and, and, and what's interesting about this is other than the case, you're not expecting anything in return for this. This, this is um, other than the fact of learning, right? There's no expectation or I guess it helped me understand. Is there some part of, you talked about disbursement is the number one KPI that you're measuring. Are any of these loans quote unquote paid back? If you may, is there capital that comes back through the process well, or is yeah. it, is, help me understand the, that. The loans are being made by the financial service partners and the loans are all expected to be paid back with a, with a local market rate of interest. So the institutions that we're working with as partners are interested in working with small farmers, are interested in working with low-income education schools, but, but need to have the loan paid back. So our, our, our work is to enable that 
that activity to be done sustainably, which in this case is not a lot of loan losses and, you know, at a market zone. Right, right. And then that, I can imagine, just provides a whole confidence in the cycle, right? The financial cycle and borrowing. And then that, and then there, there must be for the loan recipient um, who gets their first loan ever, and then they actually have the ability to pay it back. There must be some sense of pride, right? That comes from that experience. Well, that t- tremendous amount of uh, pride and can. And so let's go back to that school example. So we have a school that's got one room and they're educating, you know, 30 kids. They get a $10,000 loan and they got two rooms and they're educating 75 kids. And then they, they get another loan and another loan. And over, you know, some of these have been working with us for close to 10 years. They've got several schools in different locations or the farmer that started out with five acres, just working at he or she by themselves now has 25 acres and half a dozen employees working on it. So now you've grown employment, you've grown the economic, you know, viability of that particular area. And it just, it, 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 when it works, it's growing exponentially in those, in those, uh, in those places. Uh, so t- tell us a little bit more about once again your specific role. You know how how are, what have you seen as opportunities? Forgive the pun here to to help improve even your own organization to be more effective at um, getting the funding out and and once again continuing expanding the the effort and the mission that OI has. Yeah. So so what I'm what I'm working on and what I'm doing is I I run our institutional business, which is program development and resource development with the U.S. government, corporations and foundations and and impact investing, which is a new area, but a promising area for for OI. And that's a good fit with my background in investment banking. And it's a good fit with, you know, a way to really have have a lot of impact. As an example, we we just announced in the last week, a new partnership with a Dutch multi-billion dollar social impact fund where over the next three to four years, they've committed to invest up to a hundred million dollars in loans to these partner banks that we work with in education. So this Dutch fund wanted, wanted an education product and they're partnering with us. And then we are going to jointly market their funding along with our technical assistance to new institutions who want to get engaged in education lending. So that's a good example of how we've used impact investing players, social impact investors with capital already raised with what we're doing already with small banks in Africa and Latin America. We're going to start in Africa with that with that partnership, but we're going to take it to Latin America over time. So. Wow. That's, that's not a small amount of funds, right? To be able to put in additional financing capital to help, help out these right. uh, support so that, areas. So that'll be, that'll be capital released. So let's just play it through. So it, through this partnership with, the, with a Dutch fund called Oiko Credit, O-I-K-O Credit, we would expect three years from now to have $100 million of additional capital released into low-income education in primarily sub-Saharan Africa, and then probably some by then in, in Latin America. And for us, that's just 
incremental. You can multiply it through to the number of schools and number of children. That's just an incremental one. We, based on our math and our history, that's an additional 1.6 million kids going to school. So it's, it's capital released, but we're, we're focused on changing lives and adding people to the, you know, to the higher levels of the pyramid. And that's, you know, that's going to have a direct impact like that. If I may, first of all, this is just a wonderful story. It just continues to, to magnify, I guess, my, my, why I hope everyone is listening, understands what a, what a powerful organization Opportunity International is. What do you deal, you know, obviously Africa is a massive country, multiple cultures, different areas. Do you have to somehow selectively select those who um, are ready to receive funding? You know, you have some areas that have a lot of just strife, civil wars, et cetera. So you have to, I'm assuming, have to be a little bit selective in terms of where you're investing. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Carl. And we, we wrestle with these, these kinds of choices. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So we have three contracts with, it's USAID State Department funds that are then given to a third party consulting who then contracts with us. So we have we have contracts, we have to follow all the U.S. government compliance rules, et cetera. And in those contracts, we are providing edu finance and edu quality services in Zambia, Tanzania, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Zambia is a country right now that is in, and I'm, I'm not an expert on international, you know, African debt, but they're more or less in bankruptcy or not paying on their, they're in default on much of their external foreign debt. Wow. But this is the very reason, because that country needs help and needs support, that's the very reason why the State Department wants to support that country and in our case, support their education system. So they, through this third party, you know, this consulting firm that got the U.S. government contract, then they contracted with us. So Zambia is a country that's got some financial pressures for sure, but we're in there working. Separately, we were, re- were recently looking at a partnership involving potential work in Mali. And Mali is a country that has some pretty significant, you know, just security issues. And at the moment, we're not writing it off, but we're on pause about new work in Mali. And, and so we have these sort of, you know, country risk issues that we need to bring into play and, and it's dynamic. We do, when I first met my boss at Tool Tan and our CEO, he made a very convincing point, which is we go where other people don't want to go, can't go, just choose not to go. And that's very true, but we have some, we, we have to, you know, we have to use some benchmarks and some, some, some caution sometimes as well. So, yeah, that, that. Makes a tremendous amount of sense. So now we're going to hit on the the personal side. I I really enjoyed our conversation we had the other day um, prepping for this. And the hint to the audience here is, is you may have noticed when I was speaking about Randy's bio, he had an MBA from the University of Chicago, but we didn't mention that he has a bachelor's degree. So Randy, could you share with your early part of your career how it was very non-traditional? And I think it's a I think it's a great insight to those who are out there in the working world of how you can be on a certain path and end up somewhere completely different through a lot of hard work and ingenuity, if you may. But Randy, you want to share that story? Sure. 
Sure, happy to do it. And you know, one takeaway form of advice is if you're really committed, don't take no for an answer. So I grew up on a dairy farm, worked hard, milked cows twice a day. That was the life in uh, southern Wisconsin in small town I grew up in. I didn't think a lot about it. When I reached the age of 18, I intended to attend the University of Wisconsin. I was working over the summer and during the later stages of high school, I was working at the local IHOP, International House of Panic. Over the summer, after my senior year, they gave me a chance to be in charge of the restaurant for a couple of weeks as assistant manager while the manager took a vacation. So this is an 18-year-old guy who's going to college, but he's all of a sudden in charge of a business. I did well. I guess the place didn't burn down. Nobody died. We didn't lose any money. And at the end of the summer, they made me an offer to become the manager of an IHOP and work for the company, basically work for the regional office in Chicago and kind of be a troubleshooter. So I deferred on college. I kind of think about it as people that might take a gap year now, or maybe went to the Peace Corps, or joined the army for a few years. I was still intending to go to college, but maybe in a year or two after I made some money, because I didn't have any. I grew up working class. So I went off and worked in restaurants. Well, I got promoted and then promoted again. And eight years in the in the work, I was running a business that today would have revenue of about 200 million. It was 60 restaurants across the Midwest. And I had a, you know, I had a restaurant career. I had a plan to become the CEO of a restaurant chain. And then I decided to change from that career and go back and get a formal business education because I was more interested in taking my business career in a different direction that was, I guess you would say more corporate or more strategic or just in a different way. So I went, I went, I decided to leave the restaurant business and go to school. I had a chance to learn about a special eligibility where a single digit number of people were admitted to the University of Chicago Business School, now called Booth, in the late 80s without a college degree. And the special eligibility basically ran as follows. If you had some business success and you could take and you took seven standardized tests in math and English, and there was one in hard sciences, if you could take those tests and get a 90th percentile on six of the seven tests, we would consider you to, for matriculation as a first year. I had the business story at the time, as just mentioned, and I took the tests, I got the right score. And I was a first year MBA. And that's what led to you know, my work on Wall Street. I think, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Once again, just the, the how you got there. You had so much business experience, right? Because you were in the trenches of help building and, and developing stores, the how hub stores ultimately at the end of the day and expanding that and, and getting a higher level. How did you, you had obviously a lot of hands-on learning did you find ways along the way, though, to educate yourself as you were going through? I'm kind of curious about that. You know, what were you doing to help give yourself new insights and ideas? Or were you just grinding, like from a farmer perspective, I'm just going to figure this out and, and get us. You, you're talking about while I was in the restaurant. Business. Yes, yes. In the restaurant business. Yeah. Yeah. So what I've, I've always been a now it's a very common term. We talk about it all the time. I've been a lifelong learner. I, I, I read pretty extensively. I'm interested in current events. So the whole time from leaving high school until I started at the University of Chicago, I kept up on reading. I kept up on what was going on. Going on. 
I must admit that when I did start at the university, 10 years since my last classroom experience, things like my calculus class and some of the math involved in the finance classes and stuff, I, I, had, to, I had to bone up, I had to, I had to crank up, but I did, I did keep up with the world at large during that time in the restaurant business. And that's what led to, and I, I think we were talking about this the other day, I was reading the Wall Street Journal and I was fascinated and sort of interested in larger frameworks and larger business events, if you will, than what I was seeing in the restaurant business, which is a great business for particularly young people, but it's, you know, you just get more and more restaurants as you move up. And that wasn't something I wanted to continue. So I made this, uh, I made this change to, to business school and then eventually investment banking as you know, something that I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that has to be pretty consistent is you, you clearly, you, you talked about earlier, you had to work hard on the farm when you were growing up, you had to obviously worked pretty hard to be able to manage those restaurants over the period of time, getting your MBA for the first time, figuring out cat figuring out calculus all over again, a decade later, not very, and going now into where you went into the business of working for Solomon these are 80, 100 hour, right? Uh, plus workout. These are not easy jobs to do. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like to work. And what I mean by that is I had, my father had a very strong work ethic, but more importantly, he demonstrated and I've, I've kept up on the, the dignity of work and the, the, the value of, of work. And how it gives you a place and a platform for which to, you know, grow as a as a person. I think you could say, in looking at my career, which has clearly some unusual steps, that I was, I was, and have been seeking that higher level of impact, higher level of satisfaction, higher level of meaning and purpose in my work. And so it has taken me on those different different paths. When I first started working in the restaurant business, I thought it was a pretty good deal because you got to work inside and, and you got paid cash. Uh, you know, and, and those are the biggest differences from working on a farm where I didn't get paid anything and, and you were working outside. So, you know, it's all relative. And I, as I changed, I was continually looking for more meaning, more impact and more purpose. So. All right. So now let's go to the end of your, or your, your traditional career, right? In investment banking. So what inspired you to change and start heading down the, if you may, the philanthropic life? Yeah. So that, I think that's probably the most important for your podcast and for my story and, and even for Opportunity International, the most important subject, which is I came to a point 10 or 12 years ago where I believed that I was given skills and capabilities by our maker that were intended for a higher use than what, while I was successful and while I was a, you know, I, I was involved in nonprofit through boards and as a donor and I was giving back, I was tithing from my income. What I, what I could do and should do uh, is dedicate my work full time to that to that higher calling. So I, I view my work now as a, as a calling. I, uh, I thought about it for some time. Before I left banking, 
I was offered a position uh, in, a, in a school system that I turned down, but then there came a moment, the right time, and I, I made the move about eight years ago. And as you mentioned at the top, I did a couple other things. I worked in an education nonprofit. I worked in state government for a few years, but Opportunity International is far and away the place for me to have the most impact because of the kind of work we do and because of what I can do in terms of creating partnerships and traction for bringing in more resources and deploying that effect. So what difference do you hope to be making, you know, to have, to, to being a purpose-driven leader, you know, to your, your personal and your professional circles, circles of influence today? Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit about what our goal is an opportunity to have more capital released into these areas of need Uh, on a personal one of the legacies I'd like to leave from, from this work when I, when I move on, and one of the things I'm talking about and, and, and working on even today is to be an inspiration to other men and women who are in a business role, who have skills and capabilities they could, they could employ in a different way, and have them be able to make the move and leave what they're doing, take on some uncertainty, take on lower compensation, because that's, you know, there's just the, the people I'm talking about would take a pay cut and, and get engaged in a way that they might find to be the best thing they ever did. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I don't have a long list of converts yet, but, but I'm working on it. So that's, that's, that's one way. And Along the way, be an example of, of what we're talking about here, which is trying to have impact and purpose in your in your everyday. I I, I, I love the calling that you have, right? Which which is, you know, not only are you walking the walk and doing yourself, you know, you, you're walking the talk. You you you've realized the importance and and the sacrifices that you've made from a pure monetary sense, right? You know, you, you you've clearly sacrificed compared to what you know, you work getting compensated beforehand. So that's a significant. And then you're, you're giving your time and energy to make a greater difference, literally a greater difference, right? In the world, you know, an opportunity to you shared that earlier quite well. What, what type of attributes or characteristics do you need to have as a leader, right? To help, help get people to follow those, right? Because it, it if you weren't being consistent or were fully all in, people wouldn't be gravitated to consider, well, maybe I should consider doing what Randy did, right? You know, and how do I, how do I change my mindset and be okay with not getting significant bonuses or whatever it might be, right? You know, that, that's, that's been driving their reward, right? In the past, it may have been money, right? That was their reward. But you get to a certain point where for some of us, right, another dollar is not going to make us any happier, right? It's not going to drive anything different. So what are these characteristics, attributes that you can have and you're trying to get people to follow, so to speak? Yeah, Carl, that's really, really a great question. And it's, and it's one that, frankly, I should ask myself every day, am I living up to you know, what I'm, what I'm going to say here and, and what I can do? I think the biggest and most important thing is to be in the moment and be about the other so that might be the colleague I'm working with, Scott, who's who's helped set up this podcast. Somebody from our edu finance uh, practice was in the office to, to today. Uh, he works in London. He works out of London. He spends most of his time in Africa. He was in the office today. 
and I spent an hour with that with that individual being in the moment being really attuned to what the other is and making it not about me that's if I take what I've been given and just do that and focus on the goal of our work I'll be able to handle the challenges and the disappointments the work we do is really hard what's ironic about it is I used to make more money for doing work that was easier to do. So uh, find how many, find out, find out how many people want to sign up for that. And then you'll have the small group that would be eligible here, but it's, but it's, but it's good work. And so you're getting at the heart of what, you know, what it, what it takes. So that, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be in the moment. I'm trying to be about the other. I'm trying to be about what we're collectively trying to achieve. And I pray every day to accept the level of success or failure that the work provides. Mm. I'm not going to be able to single-handedly end poverty. I'm not going to be able to make the kind of systemic changes by myself. But if I can do if I can do enough to to help get others engaged and help the organization pursue its goals, you know, that'll be enough. Yeah, and this is no small thing. I mean, you, you just mentioned of, of the, the millions of children that are having the opportunity to have edu- be educated, right? And the opportunity of their lives and the, and the macro effect of that is unbelievable, you know, of, of what it applies for. And so, Randy, I, I, I say this sincerely out of my own heart that, that you have found the calling, you know, to do what you think you're going to be able to make the greatest difference. I appreciate you saying this is not a cush job. I think sometimes people think that when they go into not-for-profit organizations, some of the, as we know, the people who are giving stewardship towards others are sometimes the hardest working people and getting paid very little compensation for what they do. But the impact on society and, the, and more importantly, the individuals is, is so extraordinary. So I commend you for that and, and doing that. Thank you. And I, I love your story too, of just how you start as a, you know, gotten to probably some people getting into IHOP, right. You know, and moving on to that, but just what an incredible experience uh, of, of when, and here you are today of being able to make the difference. And I, and I do appreciate even the other not-for-profit activities that you've had that you uh, described in the past as well. They, they all are about this sustainable and trying to truly make a difference in people's lives so they can get out of their challenges, handcuffs, right? That they were born with, that they had no control over. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just to underscore that. So since I left banking, this is the third job I've had, which is to say the first two were not stunning successes they were they were challenges and the 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 role for me in those two situations was not as good as this one you know sustained and fulfilled in those in those roles so you know i had even when i made this change i had to work at it for a few years to get to where i am now so it's you know that's the journey yeah no, i appreciate that all right. Well, I love to ask. This is I really appreciate the, the story, everything you've shared. I, I think it's very inspiring. I always love to ask, what is a book that you'd recommend to our audience? Yeah, the book I want to recommend. This was I gave it a little bit of thought, and then I realized there was only one to recommend. It's the, the Splendid and the Vile. It's a book by Eric Larson, and it's a relatively new book, maybe four or five years ago or less. And it's it's a, it's really about Winston Churchill. And the Battle of the Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson is a favorite writer, uh, a famous writer. And 
and I've read a couple of his other books, but this one's a deep dive on a relatively short period of time, several months in 1940 and 41, when the world was really in a tight place. And Winston Churchill, I love biographies. I love leadership stories. And that guy was, he was, he was the right guy in the right place at the right time. But a great recommendation. I appreciate you you sharing that. Where is the right place for people to either learn uh, more about Opportunity International or you or any other things? Where, where would you recommend for them to go? Yeah, thanks for asking. Opportunity.org. Opportunity.org is the place to go. Look under media. And it's uh... and uh, just for my own joy, if you do happen to want to learn more about Opportunity Org, please, once again, you can reach out to us. Going to their website is going to be the best thing to learn more information. I encourage you to donate in this holiday season. They have such a great cause. And if you want to learn more and contribute some other ways, just reach out. And, and if you do, you can send me a little message back and say, hey, I gave to Opportunity International. That would mean a lot to me because that's why we did the sponsorship is to help make sure that people are giving more and making a difference. So with that, Randy, thank you so much for being on the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you, Carl. Happy to do it. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.